The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. I'm going to take your Bibles out, and you can go ahead and turn to Exodus uh, 19. I'm going to read a passage from there a little bit. That's a longer section. And so you might want to turn there to follow along when we get to that section. Exodus 19, we'll look at 1 through 21 together. But today, the attribute we want to focus on is on holiness, God's holiness, something that only he alone is. There's a good quote in Tozer's book here, The Attributes of God, the first volume on holiness, how he starts the chapter, I think is is pretty good. It says, they say that when Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous Last Supper, He had little difficulty with any of it except the faces. Then he painted the faces and without too much trouble except one. He did not feel himself worthy to paint the face of Jesus. He held off and kept holding off and willing to approach it but knowing he must. Then in the impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. There is no use, he said, I can't paint him. Tozer would say, I feel very much the same way about explaining the holiness of God. I think that the same sense of despair is on my heart. There isn't any use for anybody to try to explain holiness. The greatest speakers on this subject can play their oratorical harps, but it sounds tiny and unreal. And when they are through, you've listened to music, but you haven't seen God. It really is a characteristic that's going to be hard to talk about. And as we talk about the holiness of God, it's, it, it ends up being how small you are. And so just prepare for that. Uh, it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, today we're going to talk about the majesty of God. And we sing majesty when we leave, you know, majesty, majesty. We're all excited and like, this is great. When you approach the holiness of God, it tends to actually do the opposite. Uh, if we really approach it well, I'm going to try at the end to give us some hope. I think scripture gives us some hope through Christ, even with the holiness of God that we can approach him. And so we will speak to that. But we want to look at God's holiness. And the first question is, how is God holy? When we talk about that, how how is he holy? What makes him holy? Well, first of all, he's, he's perfect morally. There's no moral imperfection within God whatsoever. Habakkuk chapter one, the first part of verse 13 says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot even look at wrong. We see the purity of God uh, that he has there and he is perfect in all of his moral ways, as I said. Well, also, when we think about God's holiness, we also know that he is separated from unrighteousness. And so Psalm 5, 4 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. We live in a world where we are always around the unrighteous. Always. We're, we're together right now, actually. So we, we can't even fathom this. We can't even understand what this would be like to be separated from all unrighteousness, to have 100% purity, 100% moral perfection. To be in that is just something we don't know and and we do not understand. And when it comes to God, it's not that it's the case right now, but it's always been the case for him. This this has always been how God is, 100% perfectly 
holier. God does not gradually get more holy and more holy. Each day he is perfect. No, he is perfect. There's no increasing of it. There's also no lessening of his holiness. He is always and always will be and always has been a holy God. And so when we see this in scripture, which one commentator had wrote, this is probably the attribute of God that is most seen in all of scripture. It's his holiness that is spoken about the most. But when we think about the holiness of God, I think there's a couple places that we go, maybe, maybe a few of them. One of them is Isaiah chapter six, verse one through five, when trying to understand the holiness of God. In Isaiah six, one through five, it tells this of Isaiah's encounter with God. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, there's really some interesting things in that passage when you try to think about the holiness of God. We like to jump straight to Isaiah, and I think that's the natural thing because we kind of put ourselves in his shoes. But I think the first place that you can go to look at his holiness is the seraphim, these angelic beings, right? these beings who don't have sin like we do. But yet, what does the seraphim do? Covers their face. Even the seraphim have to cover their face when they're in the holiness and the presence of God. And it says the whole time that they're in the presence of God, what are they doing? They are telling him, holy, holy, holy. You are holy, holy, holy. And I don't think three times is on accident. It's holy, holy, holy. Holy, holier, holiest. You are all of it. Nobody else is this. You and you alone are this. And even the angels have to cover their face in order to be in the presence of God because they can't even look upon God because of how holy he really is. And then if you throw Isaiah into the mix, who's standing there witnessing all of this, the only thing that Isaiah knows to do when he's in the presence of the holiness of God is repent. He doesn't raise his hands and sway back and forth right? It's not a worship service like we would think of. It, it's not, I should build an altar and do something as we see like with the transfiguration. It's not that. What is it? It's, I should not be here. Woe is me. I should not be here. I should not see this. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I have unclean lips. And not just that, the people that I'm with regularly are sinners as well. I'm unclean. I'm not, I am not righteous. I, I should not be in this place. And so what we really begin to witness when we talk about God's holiness, and again, a lot of time when we talk about God's holiness, we want it to sound like harps and like worship. But what we see in scripture is holiness actually is very frightening. The holiness of God is extremely frightening for us as sinners it really goes back even farther in the Old Testament. And this is why I had you turn to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, it's when Israel is in, at Mount Sinai. 
And it's the encounter there. And I want to read 19 verse 1 all the way to 21. So I want you to follow along with me because I want you to see the holiness of God trying to be explained here. And so I can't remember who it was I was reading, but they said how when you're trying to describe the holiness of God, there really is no words. There's really no language. And so what God oftentimes did was gave us examples and showed us things to try to show his holiness. And this is one of them. It says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud and the people may, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to tell the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. I mean, we're reading about an encounter with God, with his people that he has chosen. And he told them, you are to be a holy nation. You're to obey me. He's, he's brought them out of Egypt. He's done all these miracles for them. And so God seems like a good guy at this point with Israel. Like, this is great. This is great. And God says, I'm going to, I'm going to show myself to Israel because I want them to believe you, Moses, and the things that you are saying. But there's some stipulations first. It's not like just some friendly encounter, like, what's up, guys? It's me. See, believe me. It's for the next two days, they need to go clean themselves really good. 
They need to be consecrated. They need to set, them, set themselves apart. They need to wash. They need to do all of this stuff. And on the third day, when they hear the trumpet, they need to come to the mountain. But listen, don't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, I've got to kill you because I am going to come to the top of the mountain and evil cannot be in my presence. Right? I'm too righteous. I'm too holy. And so if any man or any beast touches this mountain, and it's notice, notice, don't touch them and kill them, shoot them or stone them. Stay away from them. Now, this is serious business, right? This is, this is extremely serious business when God is trying to explain to his people his holiness. And again, this doesn't sound like harps and peace. I'm going to be present with my people today. Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to get some singers. I want you to get a band. I want you to get the best speakers. And I want you to have a worshipful time. And I am going to be there in your presence. And it's going to be, it's going to be great. Everybody is going to leave comforted. Everybody's going to leave so encouraged. And it's just going to be an awesome experience. Everybody is just going to feel so much comfort because I'm in their presence. I mean, I think that's something that would preach today. <laughs> But you see the exact opposite. When God is in their presence, ooh, don't come too close, I'll kill you. You deserve to die. And it's not that God doesn't want people around. No, it's God is, is holy. I think it's a fair question. You know, why do you think the Bible displays God's holiness in such a frightening way? I think the answer is when we begin to really grasp the holiness of God and what it means what it shows us is it shows us our true selves. And it shows us completely stained with sin. Just completely stained with sin. We just can't help it. We're sinners. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want to do good, we just continue to fall short, all of us. And so when we have an encounter with this holy God, the natural response is fear. Because I'm not, I'm not that. I'm not worthy to be here. And then you throw in the power and all that other stuff. You begin to feel very small. And so then what does this mean for us? This holiness of God, what does it mean for us? Well, Obviously, as we've been talking about, we are not holy. And that creates a big problem. We cannot be with God in our sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This leaves for everybody. Nobody gets out of this. Uh, there's nobody who misses this boat. We all catch it on time. We're sinners. And I think the problem is and I'm just going to speak about the church people, is we think too little about our sin. We, we, we don't think about it enough and we don't deal with it enough. <clears throat> I would dare say for most of us, that time of the service that we started doing confession is awkward. It feels awkward anyways. I mean, when I'm sitting here and it's usually Spencer who does that time because he can't handle announcements. He don't like announcements. You can get on him for that. But that's why he does the second part. It feels like a weird time in here. It, I, think, I think the first question when people hear confession is, are we Catholic now? Is that what's happening? No, no, that's not it. 
It's a time in the service when we start to recognize and we want to recognize our sin before God and to, and to say to him, we come here to worship you today, but we realize we can't touch the mountain. We're not allowed to the mountain. We are sinners and we need to confess our sin to you. And so we want to confess our sin to you. And we try to do that corporately together so that we all recognize this is all of us. It's not just you who came in late. It's not just you who, you look a little hungover actually. No, it's all of us. The best dressed, the ones who went to Sunday school, the whole shebang. We need to confess before God because what we are doing when we worship is we are worshiping a holy God. And we have this sin in our life. And so we need to have time to where we think about our sin, when we dwell on it and we think about it and we, we ask, what do we do with this then? Am I going to repent of this? Or am I going to continue to harbor this sin before a holy God? Am I going to obey or am I going to disobey? That's what that confession time does every Sunday when you are approached with it. Are you going to deal with your sin right now or are you not? Are you going to worship a holy God this morning or are you going to try to brush that off and not think about that because it becomes uncomfortable for us? But the problem is the holiness of God demands this of us. It demands that we deal with our sin each and every day. Now, you may be sitting here saying, and I think this would be fair, I'm a Christian, Pastor Tim, and I know that you have taught the guilt of sin and shame died on the cross in Christ. He buried my guilt and shame, and he did that. And to that, I would say, amen, yes, that is true. But we still have to recognize as Christians that we still sin. None of us are walking around perfect. Oh, we might strive to obey him fully, but we just don't. And so even as a Christian, even as one who recognizes the fact that Jesus has died in my place for my sin, I still have to acknowledge the fact that I fall short each and every day of God's standard. I still do, even knowing Christ, even knowing his word, even trusting in him and wanting to live for him, I still fall short. And when I walk through these doors to come and worship with all of you, I walk into this room dirty and stained. I am, because I'm a sinner. I'm still a sinner. And the Bible tells us, even as Christians, we need to daily be repenting of our sin and striving for holiness. The Bible is very clear. Be holy because I am holy. We don't have an out when it comes to this. Like Paul would say, should I keep sinning so that grace can abound? By no means. I died to that. I died to that. But yet we know we still sin. And so we have this question maybe in our mind. I died to this. Why do I keep doing it? Well, it's because I'm still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. But there is good news in it. As we read in some places, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 tells us this The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. When we approach the holiness of God, it's hard not to talk about the mercy of God because the fact of the matter is, each one of us should be dead because of our sin. 
all of us in this room. That's what we really deserve, but yet the mercy of God allows us to live on. And I'm thankful that we serve a God with great patience, a lot more patience than I have, a lot more patience than I'm sure many of you have. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe you were doing something, maybe it's a sport, maybe it was something technical, and somebody on the team just wasn't up to par with everybody else, and it's frustrating. It's a frustrating thing. You know, it's like, you're talking about the ABCs over here, and we're talking about trigonometry and some high-level stuff. I'm tired of having to keep coming back and teach you new things to pull you up. How about we just get somebody new on the team? That's my thought. But yet God... God in his patience, God in his mercy, God in his steadfast love continues to love us. Even as part of his family, as he wraps his arm around us through Christ. And I think the greatest place to go to that, and it's where we've been, but is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Remember that hopeless state? The hopelessness of our sin. Then verse four comes in. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, even in that, we see, the, we see the grace of God in verse four, but God, right? He steps in and doing something that we cannot do. And it says he prepared these good works for us, but it's not about works. Why? Because again, we fail in it all the time. Even as believers, even as people of faith, even people saved by God's grace, the stain of sin is still so deep that we just can't seem to run of it. But God steps in for us. And so yes, there is this balance here that is difficult sometimes for us to walk in. I'm saved by grace. I don't carry guilt and shame anymore. Uh, my destiny is not hell. My destiny is glory with God forever. Yes. But on this side, the Bible's still very clear. I'm a sinner. I'm stained. I still need to seek God in repentance on a daily basis there's still this work happening in my life where he's molding and making me into the image of his son and he's rooting out sin in my life and it hurts and it's hard and it's difficult, but I know that he's doing this. Why? So I can be like his son. I can, I can be, get free of sin and rid this sin in my life. It's this constant process of no guilt, no shame, yet still needing to deal with sin. There needs to be a healthy balance in our life. And when we understand the holiness of God, this side of it really becomes crystal clear. So what does this mean for our life? Understanding the holiness of God, what? Okay, good, now what? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 to 29 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Whenever it talks about the holiness of God, it's talking about the separation of God in scripture. There's just a separation between him and us. And there's one translation, uh, Tozer talks about this a lot, where it can mean awful thing, that's holiness. God is an is a awful thing, meaning awe, you should stand in awe continually. He is the only one who is awful. And we should recognize that. Nothing else deserves our awe. Nothing else deserves, him alone is worthy of our awe. He, this is who he is. And it, it's, it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews would say, for our God is a consuming fire. His holiness demands this. He's not holy if he can accept evil. He's not holy if sin can be a part of him. It can't be. Thus, he's a consuming fire who consumes this evil, who consumes this sin and, de- gets, and gets it out of here. And so I think there's a few things that we should do. Number one, uh, this is maybe the more practical of it, is we need to worship him acceptably. We do. I keep trying to bring up worship as we go through the attributes of God, and I'm going to keep doing it. And one of the reasons for that is because we're getting ready to hire a pastor of missions and music. And worship is worship. When I say worship, I mean music is a big part of, of Monroe's history and different things. And one of the things that we have to make sure that we are doing when we worship together is that we're worshiping God how God wants us to worship him. Not how I want to worship him, not necessarily how you want to worship him, but how he tells us to worship him. Think about Israel in that moment. I got to take a bath for two days. God's going to come down and I got to take a bath for two days. I got to consecrate myself. You're telling me as a husband, I can't be with my wife for two days. I, I got to stay away from my wife, right? All this, I mean, all these different things that you're telling me to do. You're telling me I can't touch that mountain. I touched it. What? What does that have to do with anything? That rock is the same as this rock. I think it would be better if we did this. I have to believe Moses heard that. If those people are like all the people that I've known in my whole life, there were people saying, this is stupid. There were teenagers, just like our teenagers in the back right now, who were saying, this makes no sense. Dad, this is dumb. Mom, no. This is crazy. But here's the fact of the matter. It is exactly what God said you must do if you want to worship me well. This is what you're going to do. In the Old Testament, you can read all the times, all the festivals, all the different things that take place. God tells them exactly what to do. If you're going to worship me well, this is what you need to do. Priests, this is what you need to do, even down to taking baths. This is how often you need to make bread. This is how you need to light it. This is what this lamp needs to be made out of. God was very specific about his worship. And it's no difference for us today. We need to make sure that when we approach this holy God of which we are separated from, the only reason we're a part of his family is because of Christ and his finished work and he's brought us in. We need to ask the question, are we worshiping you how you want us to worship? Or am I worshiping you how I want to worship you? It's kind of like a lot of husbands in here. When you buy your wife gifts, you don't often buy her the gift she wants. You buy her the gift you want her to have. My father-in-law bought my mother-in-law a motor, boat motor. You think she wanted a boat motor? No, he wanted a boat motor. This just works out this way. I thought you always wanted this. No, okay, right? 
We're all guilty of that, I'm sure, in some ways, in the gifts that we give. That, that's, that is wrong. Right? We should give the gift that they want. It might not make any sense to me. This is what you want. Yep. Okay. I love you, and so I am going to get you this because this is what you want. If we say that we love God, shouldn't we worship him? How he tells us to worship him. We need to make sure that we are doing that and worship him acceptably. And one of those things is when we approach worship as an individual, when you come into this room, are you approaching him in an acceptable way? Are you coming in tired, you know, and all this thing and just like, ah, whatever. Or are you coming in to actually worship this holy God? to praise him, to honor him. I'm just as guilty as the next person. It's very hard for me on Sunday mornings. I'm thinking about the sermon. I'm thinking about what I got to do after, the meeting that I have after. I'm thinking about Sunday night sermon, how it's not done yet, and I got to get on that even more. So I'm just as guilty as anybody else. But are we approaching him well as we come to worship? Next thing I think in our lives, we need to revere God. This is something that we do. Our actions show this. It shows if we revere him, if we, if we treat him as this holy God, the way that, the way that you uh, talk to him throughout the day, the, how often you think about him throughout the day, all these different things really begin to add up to show what do I think about God? What are my actions showing me about how I feel about this holy God? Again, that's a question that you have to answer. I can't do that for you. Man, when we think of his holiness and what he has done in his mercy for us in Christ, if that was on the forefront of our mind at all times, how would that change our daily interactions with people? How would that change how we raise our kids or how we treat our husband or our wife or how we talk to the person we see at the bank? It shows how we really revere God. Lastly, we need to make sure that we are in awe of God. And now this is something that we feel. And the problems with feelings is they're often fleeting, aren't they? I mean, one moment I'm happy, the next moment I'm ticked off, whatever it might be, whatever makes you feel that way. But our feelings seem like something we can't always control. I don't think that's true. I really think when it comes to our relationship with God and how we feel about God and the question, am I in awe of God? There are things that we can do to help us with that feeling. Now, it's the same things that I always talk about us doing, which is interesting because the Bible's always giving us the same tasks to do, to honor him, to worship him, to love him how we should. Reading God's word helps us to feel the awe of God as we stay in it on a regular basis. Being prayerful, having a time when we actually speak with our father, how we should, again, not how I want to pray necessarily, but how he tells us to pray. Jesus gives us prayers. Psalms are filled of prayers. Paul prays in his, and in praying these prayers, how they would pray them, praying according to God's word. As we read his word and we're, we're being hit with something, something like this, God, it tells me in your word to be holy. God, help me to be holy. That is praying the word. Help me to obey you. Help me to not feel the guilt and shame too much, but to feel it enough to be able to fall on my face before you. This is, this is what it's like to pray the word and it helps us to feel the awe of God that we should have. But then also fellowship with believers. Worshiping how we should in the place that we're called to worship with our church family reminds us of the awe of God. 
We need to make sure that we are living in a way that recognizes the holiness of God. Again, I feel like what Tozer said at the beginning, I don't know how to paint the picture well. How do you talk about something I can't even comprehend? My life is full of sin. I'm surrounded by sinners and I'm about to go back into more sin this week. And so how can I even do it justice to even begin to speak of the holiness of God? Well, I hope that in the scriptures that we've read, you've seen it and I trust that the Holy Spirit by his grace will help you to understand it a little better. And I hope that you'll be able to respond to God's word how you should. Maybe it's dealing with sin in your life. Maybe you've been just pushing some sin aside like, ah, that's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. The holiness of God demands it. The fact that Jesus died for it demands it. The fact that you're his chosen, right? You are his child. He is your father demands that we do our best to rid sin in our life. Why? Because he is a holy God. He is a consuming fire and he has chosen me. And the best thing that I can do is try to rid this sin in my life. So I want to encourage you to do that. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it is not fun. It is a painful process to have sin rooted out of your life. But sin is not to be a part of us. Sin is something that we are trying to run from. But again, remember this, and I want to encourage you with some grace because there's a lot of law here. Remember this, and this is 100% true. Jesus Christ has satisfied all the requirements for you in salvation, all of them. If you are his child, if you've been saved by his grace, your sin is not keeping you from heaven or keep, no, Jesus has completely finished that work for you and you are his He is your father. He's adopted you into his family. He has redeemed you. Keep going with the words. He's reconciled you. We can keep going. So don't lose hope. But there is encouragement tonight to let's rid ourselves of that sin. Let's allow him to work in our life. And I think the first step is recognizing his holiness. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for, again, the truth of this attribute of yours, of your holiness and what it means for us. God, it is hard to even comprehend it. And God, it's easy for me to stand up here and say, this is something we should think about every day. But God, I even know myself, probably tomorrow I'll forget. But God, I do ask that you would help it to be on the forefront of our mind. The fact that not only the the fact that you're powerful, you're creator, you're sustainer, Not that you're self-sufficient or sovereign, all these things that we know about you, but also your holiness. And your holiness really just separates you from all of creation because of the stain of sin all the way from Adam. But God, help us to be encouraged. How Paul speaks in Romans that Jesus was the perfect Adam who came, who met all of the requirements who lived a sinless life that we could not live and then died on the cross in our place and received that death penalty that we deserved. He took it. And not only did he take it, he then conquered it and rose again. And so now we as believers, those of us who've been saved by grace through faith, we have the privilege to be able to walk in that freedom, knowing I am not bound by sin. Sin does not control me anymore. 
It is that I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm, I am freed from the guilt and the shame of sin. That if, I, that if we were to die, we know that we'll spend eternity with you in glory because we are yours. And that is a work that you have done. But God, yet still, in your word, in the New Testament, it calls us to obey. It calls us to deal with the sin that we still have in our life. And so God, help us to do that. I pray that you would help us to have a good balance in our life of dealing with our sin and understanding our sin, but also understanding the freedom that we have because of Christ. Not to be so weighed down by it all the time, but to have a healthy weight to where we go to you each day, repenting of sin, recognizing our sin and trying our best to deal with it. And so God, help us to be faithful to that. Help us to allow other people in our life to hold us accountable. Give us people to be able to share with our sin who can encourage us and, and help maybe equip us better to fight those sins, to fight those temptations. God, I thank you that you give us a church family, that we don't have to do this on our own, but you give us friends and family who are believers to help encourage us along the way. God, we know that we do not deserve you, but God, we are so thankful that by grace you have chosen us. God, help us to live in light of that this week. Help us to honor you with everything we say and everything we do, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.